Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as if Catherine's tactics make Precy question her ethics, has she war-crimed her way back into being good? Are gazelles actually just full of strings? And how will Catherine get out of this mess she's found herself in? The action-packed climactic finale starts now. Our doctrine is one of cost efficiency. Any officer who believes extermination of the enemy is a valid path to victory should immediately be demoted back to the rank. Marshal Ranker. So, before we even talk about the chapter, let's talk about the end of the entire series, because that's apparently the stated goal of this podcast. All right. Total extermination is not a conventionally effective method of warfare. High amounts of cost, low returns, great chance of resentment, etc., etc. It's not the greatest way to win in the five-way melee we're seeing right now if you could instead take out the officer corps. But by the end of the series, Marshall Ranker's much-decried war goal is the only effective method for both sides. Any single soldier left over from the Dead King is a killer and potentially self-multiplier left in so-called reclaimed lands. And I suppose the Dead King actually doesn't have to worry too much after he sufficiently breaks the will of man. But his stated goal is the extermination of all life on Kalernia. And I just think that's fun. Marshall Rinker is right all the time, except the primary time in the series. Well, it, I mean, it's important to note that the the reason behind extermination not being a valid path is because there's a, a axiom, I guess. I'm not really sure where it comes from off the top of my head, but... Uh, the phrase death is not contagious comes to mind where you're more interested in breaking your enemy's morale than you are in killing individual soldiers in, in a war. But when you're dealing with the dead king, death is explicitly pretty contagious because every person that is killed becomes another soldier for him. It spreads like that. It, it builds on itself. And on the flip side, you can pretty easily break an army with certain destroying certain necromancers and the dead king himself that kind of thing so the axiom breaks down and thus the what follows from it breaks down as well so you know pretty pretty 
pretty good job there, Ranker. She just needs to consider the most powerful necromancer to ever live next time she tries to offer advice, I guess. The nature of the Dead King is such that he will never actually break out of containment on a total scale. Like, you know, Ranker might as well start planning on what to do with the Yante sailing. It's game over. Yeah, one of those was enough for Kalernia. So this, uh, this chapter's a big one, unsurprisingly. It's the conclusion to book one, not counting the epilogue. Uh, it's very sudden. Uh, we are. It's the end of the five-way melee. It's the end of the arc of Catherine going from being, you know, a random Halloween orphan into being the squire at the head of a legion in Prace. She doesn't formally take on that role during book one, but she's there. Um, it's also, by PGTE standards, absurdly short. This is chapter 28. When you add in the prologue and epilogue, 30 chapters for this entire book, that's not, uh, that's not very many. Um, what about the interludes, though? Did you count those? Uh, let me add those in. That's 30 chapters for... Oh, wow. <laughs> for book one. Um, but we get, a, we get a nice conclusion to the five-way melee, which is also uh, sort of cat reaching a conclusion, pulling together the culmination of some of, of Black's teachings to, to win the wager here. Not the melee, necessarily. No spoilers, but she doesn't win. But she does. She does take it. She does take the victory from uh, from Eris. Uh, so this chapter, we see Cat um, struggle with the idea of beating Juniper for a bit, um, and or rather, we see the result of her struggle last chapter. Um, and she has come up with a plan. Uh, this plan mostly revolves around more explosive necromantic constructs. Uh, some clever use of ramshackle sort of battlefield-constructed defenses to take down um, Juniper's mage line or weaken it as much as she can. Some more explosives, and then Kat's biggest strength, her her true power in this first book, diplomacy. But despite all of those resources, all of those skills, all of that struggle... Catherine is still up against the near unbeatable. You see, Juniper is predictable in only one way, and the worst way there is. Yeah, Kat has come to the conclusion that Juniper is successful because, or despite being predictable, because her predictability is that when she has the right information, she always makes the correct choice. Um, this is, I think, interesting that we're seeing Kat this early on in her career where she uh, doesn't have the experience to know that saying there is one correct choice to make in any given military situation uh, is just not a not something that makes any sense really um, but it also from Kat's limited experience where she is now you know it fits when Juniper has when Juniper knows the lay of the land, she makes the decision that wins her the battle, which, to Kat's mind, is the correct choice, I guess. It's the best decision. It's the only decision that you can make. And that's the key thing here. Even though Catherine is impossibly wrong in the way she states the particulars, or rather the particulars are impossible, mm -hmm. she 
has a very valuable conclusion, a very valuable truth. Juniper, go and be good. (laughs) And in fact, as we see by the end of the chapter, that's actually Catherine's victory. Juniper makes the right choice at the end for what her goal is. Just happens to align more neatly with Catherine's goals than you might have thought. There's also a little bit of arrogance, hubris, something like that from Kat in saying that... What? Hubris from Catherine (laughs) Bowman? True, true, true. In saying that Juniper is predictable because she makes the right choice, uh, meaning Kat also can tell what the right choice is in a given situation, that she can make a... give herself the initiative and be able to accurately tell what the Hellhound is going to do because there is a right choice. I don't know about you, but I think saying, ah, I can, I know what my opponent will do because I know the perfect decision. Okay, Kat, then why can't you just win? <laughs> you know, there's... <laughs> no, no, you have not said. Even if Catherine is always going to make the right choice, which as we see in the series, she always does without any huge True. and costly errors, she can't be everywhere at once. And so she needs people who will carry out her will. And while she has plenty of obedient people, it's nice to have someone who comes to the same conclusions, you know? The sort of one brain cell theory, except since Catherine is so smart, it's actually the billion brains. I, how many cells are in a brain? A, a billion sounds right. I mean, you could say any alien and I'd believe it. Uh, Google says 86 billion. So in Catherine's case, it's, you know, sharing the 100 billion brain cells. Yeah, she she has 14 billion more brain cells than the average person because, as we know, orcs do have big heads. And two rows of teeth. Don't forget that. Maybe that's where they keep the extra brain cells in the second row of teeth. I really don't know how teeth work. <laughs> I don't know if I've mentioned to everyone, but I never took a biology course. So, Catherine has a really tough task ahead of her, even though she perfectly can predict Juniper's every action because she is just so smart. She also has something else on her side, which are, in her words, the heavens. For, she writes, she says, she thinks... Her perspective recounts to us, the reader, as long as I had Juniper reacting instead of acting, the heavens were on my side. It's, you know, it's the classic, like, uh, if you, the, the, the gods favor the bold and that kind of thing, but phrased in Kalernian and also phrased incorrectly because this is Kat, which she catches pretty quickly. Uh, She says, although I guess technically they're on neither of our sides, probably should stop calling on them, period. And I have to say, it's about time that she reached that conclusion. We've been lamenting the fact that she keeps referring to the heavens, and she'll definitely stop now that she's noticed it, right? I mean, of course, there's no need to even draw extra attention to it, as though there's going to be comedic irony. And I do appreciate that Catherine has learned quickly that you shouldn't call on, or even worse, mock divine forces that have the power to straight up smite you it's something i know black would never do dear listeners please pay attention when we do next week's episode chapter 31 epilogue maybe not chapter 31 we'll see what we call it epilogue (laughs) so once catherine has thought through everything all of a sudden 60 odd legionaries are running downhill towards the palisade knock has showed up which means it's time for catherine and her gang to go run to meet them really And so Catherine picks up her shield, waits a few heartbeats, and begins to sprint across the grounds. And she makes the most ludicrous choice for no reason. And I think this is an expression of her character more than anything. Nothing comes of it, but it needs to be pointed out. 
Feeling my lungs burn as I forced my body to move, I jumped over a low-riding bush and only barely managed not to trip as my foot got snagged into a root. Bushes do not come out of nowhere, and I huh. am not tell, tell under the impression. Room, am I right? To be fair, that was a tree. Go ahead. That's very, very bad. I love it. Um, Catherine really could have gone around as an expression of stubbornness. Why, Cat? Why? You know, riding high on uh, hoping to have that name power, showing off for Hawkram, just, yeah, stubbornness. You're right. That's what it is. Yeah, but Ratface isn't here right now. Hawkram isn't on hand, I think. What, what is he up to in this entire chapter? Uh, you know, is he just hiding so that if things go poorly, there's still an officer around? But that means you say showing off for Hawkram who's presumably one step behind and one step to the left or right of Catherine at all times, right. since he's not otherwise mentioned. But other than that, Ratface isn't here, and there's no one else who's been explicitly called up, called out as attractive to Catherine yet in this yep. chapter. So who's she showing <laughs> off for? The only one around right now is Klingon, and she's not attractive to Catherine, right? Yet? Yet uh -huh. is important. So speaking of the people around Kat, um, as, they're, as she's getting set up here, she is noticing that her officers are doing a fantastic job with the delegation that she's been handing out. Um, and she, she gives us the line, It was a good thing that for all their quirks, my officers had a knack for their area of expertise. Kat is a very competent, successful person on her own. She's incredibly influential, very powerful, like down the line, very powerful individually. But she also has a knack for collecting very good people, people who are great at their job, it, whether that's Hawkram, who's so good at his job that he gets a name out of it, or the, the uh, woe in general, or even just all the people, Juniper and the, all of the, the people in the 15th. <clears throat> and I don't know if this is a skill that's personal to Catherine, or if it's luck, which is a really loaded term in this setting, or if it's named nonsense explicitly, like if it's her her going into a name that's meant to be the commander of the legions, you know, ostensibly she'll be heading for Black Knight. If creation just nudges competent people towards her for her to build a band of five around herself and uh, a, an army around herself that's just as capable on their terms. I don't know, it's just... It, this is a recurring theme for Cat, obviously, and I'm wondering how much of that is Cat and how much of it is creation giving her a, giving her a hand. I'd like to propose one more possibility, or rather, one more force that Shirley included with the others in concert okay. that helps to arrange this. Catherine, or how much does creation nudge those around her to competence? As in, the people are maybe not as. Or wouldn't have been as competent had they not been around Cat. Exactly. I think Hawkram could not have received his name without being by Cat, but perhaps Ratface couldn't have so successfully managed, but in the wake of such a story. Because her story requires management, thus he will manage. I as think Angela that, Merkel taught us. I think that holds for some of the of her followers, but not all. Juniper would have been unbelievably successful no matter what. There was there's no stopping Juniper. I think that's she true. and Hasenbach are mortals beyond. Right. I mean, even even among the named people, like 
Z's wasn't going to be anything less than what he becomes. Cat gives him the exposure to certain things to guide the exact flavor of all powerful he becomes down the line, but the exact flavor of deicide he engages in. Exactly, right. But without Cat, he was still gonna do things like that. It just may not have his apotheosis may not have begun with Faye specifically, you know? So But Nepo babies get where they're going yeah. regardless. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and obviously Kat had a pretty heavy influence on where Vivian ended up, like, no doubt there, but I, listen, I, I think Kat helped, but I don't think anything was going to stop Indrani from rangering it up eventually. She, she was, that was her story, right? Like, I, I think that was hers. Yeah. So I, I think it holds for some people, but not for others. So it could be a blending of all three factors we've mentioned, just depending on the individual and who knows we have gone for a while without really engaging much with what's happening in the story because it has been repositioning but now everyone maybe even hakram don't ask is together and it's time for the plan to begin the only sad point is that knock can't really come along with them right now because he's still a little beaten up from that time when he was broken into pieces and then bastion ogre's head in in that order and so <laughs> he wishes Catherine and the gang luck the only way we know how, which is wade in their blood, Captain. And I'm just happy to see that. And now it's time to put the plan into action. Yep. It starts by sending in uh, a goat, uh, Ratface's ex specifically. And Cat complains about the nicknames for the goats for some reason. Uh, and... She's okay referring to this goat as Ratface's ex because in her mind that's better than the alternative. And she's she's just wrong, right? Because I shouldn't have done that is the best name imaginable for one of these goats given the, the context. It's so good. Now, since this is an audio medium, everyone understands immediately what you said if they're not reading along, right? Of course. And should uh, feel bad if they hadn't. <laughs> naturally but you know if somebody feels bad and wants to be brought into the into the circle here the name is i shouldn't have done that with the first word being the normal contraction the normal english contractions with the spelling of that being a i s h a apostrophe d n t it's a very clever play on aisha's name i shouldn't have done that it's great it's the best name it's sad that cat refuses to use it Catherine has failings that she needs to work on. And while she never works on this one, there is something that she does improve upon. They bring forth the goats and Catherine reconnect. She kneels next to a corpse, touches its forehead as it rises to its feet. And she says, I'd yet to figure out how to manipulate more than one at a time. The corpses remained still unless I willed it otherwise. And I'd found that after leaving one alone for too long, I needed physical contact to make it work properly again. The zombies absolutely display sentience as we go on. They truly are characters, are creatures in their own right. And in addition to having a resurrected zombie and a resurrected dread emperor, Rur or Riss, depending on where the lines of animality and gender intersect. Uh, I'm sorry, that was rude to the Emperor. I think they would have really preferred, I say, vermin verminitude. Uh, there it is, yep. 
But she also resurrects a high lady while controlling traitorous and zombie Roman numeral here, all of whom seem to function independently. It's cool. She improves greatly. And we're just going to not mention the fact that she improves greatly, maybe because there's some divine power backing her up at that point. With Catherine Foundling, if you start bookkeeping what horrible forces are generating her powers at what time, you're really getting into a lot of ever-changing bookkeeping. But How does she manage patronage from so many people when she's so Catherine? Honestly. But uh, speaking of, I don't know, horrible divine power, uh, despite what Kat said, I don't know, six paragraphs ago, the next line here is, there would be no zombie army for me, it seemed, and weeping heavens, when had I... And so on and so on. She drops a weeping heavens here. Hey, Kat, you just said you were going to stop doing that. Come on, stick with it. Well, not keeping your promises is probably evil. Mm, yeah, that's true. There'll be no zombie army for her. And when had she reached a point in her life where I was using the words zombie army without a hint of irony? I just want to remind you what half of the entire series is about fighting. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> so after this, we... Continue getting into position. Uh, Kat revealed uh, a stage in her plan that had Pickler create these sort of homemade battlefield mantlets, which are these basically movable walls constructed typically out of wood, but here constructed out of leather made from tents strapped to the stakes that the legionaries would carry to build their forts. So very sort of ramshackle thrown together uh, cover. And although we'll see what these are for shortly, historically speaking, a mantlet is used to defend from things like arrows or bolts from crossbows, and they're made of wood because, as I read this, my first thought was, I don't think leather is going to stop crossbow bolts particularly well. But Cat had another purpose in mind, which we'll see in just a, a few minutes here. So I just thought that was a, a neat little construction, a neat little uh, note there. And I will have a question when we get to their true use but before we do that we must get to the action and so everyone lines up in formation everyone gets ready they've got their mantlets they've got sappers and mages arranged in formation for reasons i don't know we never know what's going to happen until it does because it's catherine and catherine is ready she says time to get the stone rolling and before she can get a word out Robber broke formation and strolled to the edge of the field. Straightening his back, he stood as high as his four feet and a half of height allowed him and slowly unsheathed his sword. Face solemn, he brandished the blade at first company. Unleash the goat, he commanded, clearly relishing every word coming out of his mouth. And I love him and I have no further comment. Move on. (laughs) He is the best. Um, So... Cat does as commanded and sends forth the goat. Um, it pretty rapidly stumbles on one of one of Snatcher's buried mines and explodes partially. And we get a little bit of information on Cat's brand of necromancy here. Um, so she grimaces when it explodes and then thinks that it's a good thing that her ability to sense through the creature's skin numbed pretty quickly after she raised it. So... When Kat's raising a creature, 
we know that she gets a pretty physical feel for its body as she's digging around in all the strings that fill up every animal, apparently. Um, and that apparently fades pretty quickly uh, until she's more controlling it from a distance rather than from within, I suppose. Um, which is good because in moments like this, as Kat mentions, that would be some pretty rough backlash if she were to feel everything that a, an exploding goat felt. Um, so, you know, just another another place where we can see the sensory effects of magic as, as Kat relates to it, um, which is always so fascinating to me. So I, I love it when, when those details show up in the story. While we're on the topic, however, I do want to point out that we see later in the chapter that Catherine can't see out of the eyes of the goat, which mm-hmm. speaks to a an interesting selection of senses she gets. She can feel something. She has touch of a kind that numbs, uh, or rather perhaps a sense of pain that numbs, or perhaps she's mixing the two, and perhaps they are mixed through necromancy. She also enjoys a degree of proprioception, because later on she will advance the goat through a cloud of smoker smoke without tangling up its limbs or what have you. Mm-hmm. But seeing it's beyond her, I don't believe we ever see hearing. She never talks about heat, I believe. She never talks about taste or smell through the creature. And maybe this just me, because I'm going to talk about my own sense of senses. But the senses she does get... A little bit of pain, a little bit of touch, a little bit of proprioception. Those are very visceral, if I may, carnal senses, rather than higher order senses like sight. You can see that which offends you, but it's rarely experienced as pain. You can hear horrible things, but it's rarely experienced as suffering. You can smell bad things. Smell, maybe. Smell and taste are kind of in you. But proprioception, touch, pain, those are fundamentally fleshy to me and i think that's cool about the necromancy it's fleshy there yeah Just call me ianthi tridentarius very good yeah it's it's yeah it's very much a she is using the body of another creature like a puppet her hands all up in and so what's going on with the body is what she's got it it makes sense it's, but yeah that i mean that's a that's that's a good point and a good way of putting it uh, but the goat explodes because it stepped on one of Snatcher's mines, which we learn are a munition grade that wouldn't actually risk killing anyone. Just, you know, knocking them unconscious or shattering their bones. Hey, um, I'm not a doctor, but if something explodes with the force that can shatter bones and also knock people unconscious, which it's pretty easy to do, I think... I have a feeling that would be pretty easily lethal. The skull is a bone. The rib cage, that's bones. Um, There's some bones that if they shatter, it can be pretty bad, especially shatter, not just break. I don't know. This this feels like another case of Kat just assuming everybody's as tough as she is, maybe. Have you actually ever studied boneology? I guess not. Good point. I love the wildly swinging pendulum of death and kitty gloves in this game <laughs> that do not mesh. Right. And I it, really hope we don't see it fixed in Yonder because I enjoy this. I honestly do. Oh yeah, it's a, it feels extremely pricey to be like this is our college and we don't want people to die and also here's high explosives and you throw fireballs at each other. We don't want our troops to die but we do want them to kill. So 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so cast them to go forward. The uh, Juniper's mages toss some fireballs to destroy it. And, oh, surprise, this goat is a decoy to lure out the mages. And Cat uh, has Korra's mages throw fireballs back at the enemy mages and take some of them out. It's a great plan. Well done. And now, of course, Juniper's mages, who are supremely well-trained, return fire, literally. And we find out what the uh, battlefield mantlets were made for. They are for fireballs. They're, you know, thick leather bound by uh, the wooden frames to have the mages hide behind so that the fireballs don't knock them out just while they're standing out mostly in the open to, to fight Juniper's mages. So there you go. Uh, they're not meant to stop crossbow bolts. And leather does pretty okay with both heat and pressure, the two elements of guide versus legion fireballs. Mm-hmm. Compared to most materials, leather is hardly unburnable or unbreakable, but it's well, it- it's Wrong probably thing. also prepared leather, considering it's not just random. It's it's tent leather, you know? You, you don't want that What's to be... What's about that? Okay. Prepared, yes. But I am not particularly tan, which I believe is how you say knowledgeable about leather. Right. But early on, Catherine actually asks Nock whether Pickler managed to make all the screens. And the orc says, they're ready. Shame we don't have vinegar to soak them in, but we'll make do. Now, I do love vinegar with all my heart, but how would this contribute to the leather other than wet beats fire a little bit, as Pokemon taught us all? I'm honestly not sure about that. I, I, I did wonder about why it was vinegar specifically. Then, scholars of tanning and flame, please write in. We will credit you publicly. We want to know. Well, I want to know. Do you want to know? I'm curious. I wonder if it's something about vinegar not, I don't know, soaking in or damaging the leather like water would. But you wouldn't think water would since this is made from tents. Maybe there's some kind of wax or something on here that the that means the water wouldn't stay on it. Well, I don't know. This I'm very curious. I don't know if there's like a, a specific thing here or if Nock just where he where Nock grew up, they don't have water and they just have Tons of vinegar, maybe, and that so he just defaults to that. Orc food must be so good. <laughs> so they deal with the fireballs very cleanly. However, apparently Juniper has a lightning bolt up her sleeve. And Catherine tells us, I hadn't anticipated Juniper would have any mages capable of calling down lightning. I could, in other circumstances, believe this if we had not already seen a lightning bolt from a from a company that wasn't renowned for being the mage company. If the mage company, of which we have none, were the one that had done a lightning bolt earlier, yeah, sure. Juniper is not the mage company. Juniper is not the best sapper company. Juniper is not the best direct hand-to-hand combat because they're ogres company. But Juniper has got a good company. Juniper has got the best general company and a different company could do it when it wasn't their thing. Catherine's just being foolish here, right? Well, I think there was some surprise when one of um, Aisha's mages could do a lightning bolt. So maybe it was more of like, I didn't realize there was more than one mage that could do this in the college, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, being being surprised by it or being uncomfortable with it is one thing, but not anticipating it, not preparing for it does feel like a mistake here, yeah, given what, given what we know. 
May I stop being mean to Catherine for a moment? Sure. I enjoy magic in the guide very deeply. And as the lightning bolt poses a threat, Tetel bites her thumb, draws blood, and swipes the line of it across her cheek, and she speaks. I am the root and the crown, the source and the flow, the storm and the calm. Power is purpose, purpose is will. Gods of my mother, take this offering and grant me the wrath of heaven. And I still remember so clearly, and will comment when we get there, on meeting Apprentice and having him speak his spell ending with drown the world in ice. But we so rarely see a verbal component to magic other than maybe a few mangled syllables in that language spellcasters use or what have you. And I, I just think it's so cool. These prose poems of immense power of a sacred profanity just in the middle of things because yes, they get to be dramatic. They're imposing their will on creation. It's so cool. That's all. It's cool. I fully agree, but there are two parts of this. And I know that with something like this, these, this um, prose poem, as you, as you said, uh, there's probably a lot of like weight here in, in history that there's probably, it's probably, probably drawing from a lot of sources um, but coming from this character is interesting. Some of the, the wording used here. Um, she says towards the end, gods of my mother, take this offering and grant me the wrath of heaven. Now, I don't know that we know much about the religion of the Fae outside of the obvious things like um, uh, the seasons or if, if that even counts as a philosophy is a religion for them. Um, but I don't feel like the Fae and the he- and Heaven are particularly associated. And we know that Kylie's grandmother was Fae. So saying gods of my mother, I, I don't know. I'm wondering, are we talking about the gods above? What the ra- How is she drawing on the wrath of heaven? Is this separate from her fey ancestry? Beginning with, I am the root and the crown, has a fey vibe to it, if you ask me. But ending with heaven, I don't know. Is this a combination power situation? Is I'm just curious what's going on there. I will be very curious if this is the same in the Yonder version, because I have the same questions and no answers. All right. Well... We'll uh, we'll look forward to that. And at the end of the day, however, I just find this kind of language really exciting. Mm-hmm. And so does Cat. Uh, oh, well, we get this sort of counterspell thing here. Big blast of lightning. It's very impressive. And Cat dwells on the situation in a very particular, a very cat-like way, a very Catherine-like way, to be clear. She notes that it was impressive. True. For the level of magic we've seen in the series so far, this is maybe the best of it. <clears throat> and Kat follows that up with, you know, she says, this was impressive. And if I was to be entirely honest, just a little bit arousing. And I just have to say, easy, Cat. You're in the middle of a battle. Focus up. And don't, uh, let's see how this paragraph ends. Wonder what the redhead looked like out of her armor. We know who Catherine is. We love her for it. But... <laughs> this this moment right here where her command of the 15th legion is on the line in a minute by, by minute very real basis is maybe not the best time to 
notice this <laughs> this mage for the first time in this way. Not to mention that it's her underling, and that is problematic. It's not great. But what is great is in the next paragraph, we get uh, a finger clench as the, the goat explodes. Uh, so adding that to our list, or our, our counter, that is number 10. The goat does explode, however. And they've got just a goat and a gazelle left. And they need to blow up the gate. They don't really know if the way is clear, but it's time. They can't wait for Juniper to regroup, and they don't have too many charges left. And so they have to begin phase three, which we learned from Kaylin is apparently popularly known as Operation Fainting Goat, which is a win for the win for Rat Company. Win by Rat Company. Rat Company's right. Yeah, Kat goes on to talk about how Katarina is the only source of sanity, one of the few sources of sanity left with everybody wanting all these silly names. Kat, Kat's just wrong here. She is. Catherine's wrong. Everybody in Rat Company is great and perfect, and she needs to she needs to get with the times. But uh, we, we move forward with uh, continuing to send necromantic constructs towards Juniper's fortifications. Uh, after the decoy, we have an actual explosive, um, and there's some concern here about getting it there, given the smoker uh, mess that's been made, so Kat can't exactly see what's going on, and there's, there's worry about the timing, because maybe Juniper will figure out a play to deal with these constructs before they're uh, able to demolish her fortifications. There's one way to stop a goat like this that Catherine thinks of in this time. Mm -hmm. And it's the most horrifying thing possible. Frankly, says Catherine, just sending out a legionary to pick it up and run back inside might do the trick if they were fast enough. I want to note that the goat then explodes just about when Catherine is thinking about this possibility. And when we finally find out what the damage is, there was no trace of the former gate, and even the tightly packed sand and stone surrounding it had been damaged. Just another, yeah, that'll kill you moment. Yeah, but if you're holding the goat, it can't explode, because it needs a fireball to hit it. It's like the old saying, a watched pot never boils, and a held goat never explodes. But, you know, other than the hypothetical goat napper, or kidnapper, if the goat's young enough um oh i like this yeah that does spare a moment to be concerned about juniper's soldiers because she's she says hopefully none of juniper's soldiers had been standing right behind the gate and yeah cat you just sent a bomb at them this hopefully ha 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 that she moves on from immediately is tantamount to cat just idly thinking gee i hope i didn't just murder somebody like cat you sent a bomb at a fortification that's armed by that's being manned by people. You probably did explode some people. That's <laughs> of course they're guarding the gates. To be fair to Catherine, however, she doesn't have much time to contemplate this because lightning shoots out towards her and her lieutenant, which makes sense because they just gave away their position by igniting a goat. Catherine writes to us. I reacted on instinct, trying to get Caleb with a K down, but she pushed away my hand and thrust out her arm. I felt goosebumps on my arm as she spat out a word in that strange tongue mages use. Sorcery meeting sorcery once again. 
Whatever it was she'd done, it stopped the better part of the lightning. A shudder ran through me, but that was the only effect I could feel. The redhead fell on her knees, and I made to help her up when I noticed her hair had turned. Strained. It looked more like fire than dark red locks. And when she turned to face me, her eyes had turned from hazel to an inhumanly vivid green. Her body had a spasm, her back arching like something was trying to break out of it, and I wasn't sure whether I should try to hold her down or let it happen. I think that's a unique moment in the guide. I don't think we see anything like this exactly again. And it's really cool and awful, but good awful. I mean, I yeah, I don't know that we see anything directly like this, but this type of thing we do see. Uh, it, it's It's one of the guide's biggest strengths when it comes to the fantasy side of the story uh not not comparing this with like the narrative or anything like that but in the the setting building ee is fantastic at this kind of there's something wrong going on here something eldritch going on here and giving you enough detail to make it vivid without filling in all of the gaps so that you can sort of you can you can internally fill them in yourself and really get a a a very cool picture about what's going on in these when dealing with weird magic things and there's a lot of weird magic in the guide and it's great it's a phenomenal part of this story and it's something that yeah we really we really need to take the time to appreciate as these come up because they're outstanding and just so enjoyable every single time in the end the mage is okay a little exhausted catherine goes on to her next business and then we see of course something that is outstanding and really great robber's here (laughs) Robber is here, and we get the birth of a legend. There's a threat leveled against him to turn him into Cat's official footrest. And this is a bit, a threat, a part of their love language that grows and doesn't go away for the entirety of the story. Even, if I recall correctly, it's the, the footrest name is applied posthumously. It, this is this is big. This is this moment is fantastic. And Robert's respect for Cat and commitment to the bit is without end. Robert informs her that the operation had been dubbed Stealth Goat by popular acclaim, which shows the strength of acclamation, a system that cannot produce something bad. She tells him that he will find her a stool, or she'll be dragging him around along for the ride as her official footrest. And then, to my surprise, he reappeared later with a fold-up stool apparently looted from Aisha's camp. Gods above and below, Gobbler itself, bless him. And then Catherine goes and stands within range of the enemy for a fair while. She writes, Juniper must have believed I was baiting her mages because there was no repeat of the lightning incident. I didn't think it would have been enough to take me out anyway. I punched a sharper two days ago and all my fingers had gotten out of the experience was a set of bruises. This kind of overconfidence gets people gets names killed, Catherine. Don't do that. I'm sure she could take a blast of magic lightning. But yeah, (laughs) not the best call. Yeah, she could take a blast of magic lightning. Juniper will throw a boulder on her face and let the gods sort her out. Though actually, we do find Juniper's a bit of a softie in a moment. Uh, This is actually a call for parlay, for discussion. And when the signal's given, Catherine walks out, sits on her footstool, literal, not goblin, and Juniper does the same. She walks out, also without a shield or helmet, though also with her sword, which I think is just a mark of genius. Unlike Catherine, Juniper doing anything is the right choice, so good for her. She made the right choice. Which is what Catherine knew she was going to do. 
<laughs> exactly. Cat's playing 5D chess here at this point. 5D what? Uh, Chatronge, sorry. Ah, 5D men. Chatronge. He stands for. <laughs> but they sit down to chat, and I really cannot stand Catherine Founding as a person. Parenthesis. Affectionately. Parenthesis. Right. Because only now, after the entire War College arc, which is very short, but it's been two months of my life in the podcast, we find out what Catherine has been either driving at or ready to bring out this entire time. Though we find it out through Juniper's words because Juniper knows what Kat's doing because she knows all things. And she says, I looked up the old rules too, Callow. Two-way draw means we keep half the points we bid. Probably shouldn't have bid twice what Rat Company has in the negatives if you wanted to keep it quiet. Oh, okay, so there's a way out, and you're only going to tell us now. I am performatively annoyed at this. It's spectacular. I mean, we referred to the five-way melee from Kat's perspective as being like a heist movie several times by now, and this is just one more step in that. It's... We, as they are negotiating here, uh, you know, there's the, you wanted to draw, Kat says, I figured it would be a good thing to have as a backup if things went south. And Juniper says, you'd lose the bet. And I don't know about you, but it's very, it's been very easy for me uh, throughout the five-way melee to forget that the specific details of the bet are known to Kat and her officers, of course, because she told them, but also to Juniper. Juniper was there. She witnessed the the wager being made, um, so she basically saw this named nonsense dealing with the most important named in Prace and two up and coming stars, also the Dread Empress, uh, being the political head as well. And she watched all of that happen, saw the details, knows what the the stakes are here, and basically, you know, these things that are well above her pay grade, especially at this point, and didn't let that influence how she's doing anything at all. She just showed up on the ready for a battle and fully expected to just win because she's Juniper. Wagers aside, the, we all know that there was zero chance that uh, Eris's machinations involved First Company. Uh, and yet, who's still here? Juniper. She knew what was going on. She knows this is basically the beginning of a story, and she just shrugged and dove in head first she, she can't help but go hard and Catherine, as well cannot help but break all the rules or rather in this case find the loophole you know playing strictly by the rules is a kind of breaking the rules and i mean that honestly mm-hmm. <laughs> ah but here's the thing i smiled the dread empress specifically phrased so that eris only got the appointment if i lost a draw isn't a defeat it's just not a victory the exact words she then recounts for us are, and should, gods forbid, our squire lose? She's a little slime. I love her. It, pulling that out at the last minute like this, realizing where things are, fantastic. It's great. It's it's great on a first read for the audience to, to have this reveal at this moment. It's fantastic. All the way around, great moment. And Juniper is still Juniper. She sees that she could, without losing, give Kat everything she needs to go on. She could give Eris a black eye if she wanted to, which would make her a rough enemy, but she could. But she intimates that she's still inclined to go for it. Give give it a try. Fight it out. And Catherine says that, yeah, it will be hard crossing an open field while getting shot at, 
Which is why I'll put my wounded in the front to soak up the crossbow fire. And Juniper, who is a consummate military professional, ready to pay the price necessary to achieve victory, ready to go to the lengths needed, unwilling to think poorly of an opponent for doing all they can to win because she will do the same, also cares about her soldiers and her people, and the other soldiers too, so far as is practical. Her eyes narrow and she says, some of them could be crippled for life. It messes up mage healing if you break the bones again too quick. These are games where people are dying and Juniper still cares about people who she recognizes are, at the end of the day, on her side. She has scruples. She's a good person. So far as the perfect general of the legions of terror of the dread empire of praise can have that word applied to them. And Kat throws it right back in her face and shows that she just doesn't care or have scruples when she says, she more or less shrugs and smiles at Juniper and says, if you don't want him crippled, don't shoot at him then. Now it's in Juniper's court, I guess, kind of. It's it's definitely a very cat move, and it's also just, what? <laughs> it, I don't know, The Juniper saying, oh, you know, you're going to cripple your soldiers, and Cat saying, no, you are, is, is so powerful. And it's very established. We know about this. No one can read the guide without picking up on it, I believe. Catherine Foundling has an honest ruthlessness to her. This is not just bluff. We know that she will go through with whatever she needs to go through with. Wow. Just wow, Catherine. Wow is right. Um, there's some back and forth with Juniper saying that she doesn't seem to get anything out of this. Um, and Kat says, I know the details of how uh, what the point system means. And I didn't think very much of it, but then I had a dream. And of course, Juniper, haha, you're gonna, you have a big, uh, a plan, these big plans that you're gonna follow through on. You think I should care? And Kat's response, it basically boils down to, no. You see, I'm the protagonist of this story. She says, not that kind of dream. I mean, the name kind. And it's just, it's great to, to lead in with, I had a dream and really, really hide the, the fact that you're, you're talking about something pretty big here so that you can drop the line that just fully rubs it in Juniper's face. You may be a good military commander, but I have a best. name. You may be the best who, military commander who only makes the right choice, but I have a name. She's a cheater. And it's a great conversation from there. Uh, Kat explains what the dream was that sometimes you have to give to get and she asks juniper so that had me wondering what do you want juniper and the hellhound quips back with some a plus banter you getting to a point would be nice so good even in the this tense negotiation about the fate of the the five-way melee <laughs> juniper's tossing out lines like that it's very good and catherine of course in response to that refuses to get to the point and instead acknowledges that Juniper is Istrid Nightbane's daughter. Pardon, is Istrid Nightbane's daughter. The orc's meaty hand closed around the hilt of her sword. You threatening my mother, Callow? She snarled. I, I appreciate that Catherine is high up in a nasty place, and this is the way Bracey tend to deal with things anyway. And I appreciate that Juniper cares about her mother. That's nice. Definitely not a foregone conclusion. And again, the Dread Empire. But Istrid does not need Juniper's protection yet. Yeah. Nobody can hurt her yet. Right. It, 
if for no other reason than her proximity to some very dangerous people, yeah, Jennifer, you don't have to worry about your mom yet. But a lot of people have to worry about her, am I right? Yeah, truly. <laughs> All of Gallo for one. <laughs> and uh, so Kat, Kat makes her official offer here. Uh, this is what she wants. She wants to draw here in an exchange. Juniper becomes the highest ranked officer in the 15th Legion. She's offering Juniper basically generalship. And it's a pretty good offer, obviously. Kat knows what she's doing. And it's just more evidence to what we were talking about earlier. Kat's best skill is... She doesn't become a general. Juniper doesn't? No. It's the L word. Legit? Yeah. So uh, Kat's best skill continues to be grabbing the best people around and convincing them to just fully throw in with her. Obviously, at this point, Juniper's not at that stage yet, but that's where Kat's headed, and this is the beginning of that. It's impressive. She fights the Hellhound to a draw, and for that, gets to utilize one of Kalernia's best military minds for her entire career. It's phenomenal. And she knows exactly what's happening in the background, too, because Juniper rejects that she could promise that but of course she can uh she says sure i can the whole thing with being a villain juniper is that you can basically do whatever the hells you want unless someone stops you and who's going to stop me in this black if i know anything he's doing that vicious smile thing he does as he eavesdrops on us right now she's right there's no confirmation in canon but she's right <laughs> he's 100 percent right and you know, Juniper has her, her qualms here. Her, You can't promise that. I'd be under your command. I'm not sure. You're bribing me. But despite all of the the back and forth and her hesitations, Kat has Juniper with the line I'm about to read. Like, there is no doubt where this is going to go when Kat says, you'll be under someone's command whatever happens. Do you want to serve under the shadow of someone who earned their spurs during the conquest? Or forge an entirely new legion with me. She's this is this is Juniper. This is the Hellhound, and you're offering her a chance to build a legion of from the ground up, brand new. That that won her over. All else aside, nice job, Cat. And then Catherine immediately proceeds to insult both Juniper and herself. <laughs> Juniper accuses her of bribing her. Cat says she's doing it shamelessly, but then she says. All a draw means is that I'm admitting that right here and right now, we're equals, I said. And that's unfair. Juniper is so much better than Catherine in some ways. And Catherine is more powerful. That counts for something. Mm-hmm. So that's all. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely a uh, one of those lines. The discussion's over. The debate's over. The, the negotiating is over. And Kat just kind of throws that out as a... See, it's a compromise. You know, it, it's that kind of line for sure. And then when surely the whole college is listening, because the moment they shake hands, or sorry, not the whole college, the whole college administration is listening, because the mm-hmm. moment they shake hands, it ends. But then she whispers to herself, and also, I believe, intentionally to Black, and also, I believe, incidentally, to the entire administration of the college, mm-hmm. despite the rules, you said. See, I do listen sometimes. and. There is no more, I'm in here because my daddy said I was going to be important move than to have private conversations in front of people who don't matter to you. Good for you, Catherine. It's a very uh, player character in a tabletop role-playing game moment, for sure. Catherine is a player character. I mean, That's yeah. the whole point of the guide. 
This is actually just a retelling of one of EE's TTRPG games. Surprise. I'd like to play in that game. So that brings the uh, contest at the college to a close. It does. And with the end of the contest comes the end of this episode, because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata as we discuss the end of book one and the future of this podcast. Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Risk by Studio Columna. Magic music was Mysterious Celesta by Aishat Danielian Composer. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a P-G-T-E-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all this possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, epilogue. Now, I have a question. And as Catherine goes about getting everything into position for her next play, the start of this chapter is really just arranging her pieces, a little chatting, nothing much for us to dig our teeth into, uh, however many rows we have. Uh, Catherine mentions that Nock's uh, aggressive tactics aren't necessarily a bad thing in a frontline commander because those are tactics shared by General Istrid, who, after the Three Marshals, was one of the household names forged during the conquest. And I have to apologize. Though I am one of the two foremost experts on A Practical Guide to Evil, I only remember two of the Marshals off the top of my head. You've got Ranker and Grim, correct? Mm-hmm. Who's the third? Isn't it Nim? Is it Nim? I'm pretty sure Nim is... Nim becomes Marshal, for sure. I think she's Marshall now and becomes Black Knight. Now we have to look it up to make sure we're right. Yep, you're very right. Good for her. Okay, cool. Now that's real feminism. <laughs> but, <laughs> that the Marshalls contain women? Yep. I mean, that... actually, yes, that is. <laughs> uh, good. Wow. 
I did not realize until this moment. Surely I read the words that passed through my head, but I didn't really realize one of the marshals under the Black Knight successful reformation of the legions and conquests and blah, 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 is an ogre. I I knew he was always a hero of the greenskins and such, but, you know, the greenskins are the orcs and the goblins, and sometimes there's an ogre here or there. And I guess the ogres have always had representation at the top, even if, have always since Black's whole thing, um, despite being the invisible minority. It's also, I mean, it's also worth noting that all three marshals are non-human. Black is, uh... Huh. Black knows what's up. I mean, Black's at the top, and then you've got the three marshals, and then, yeah. Which then puts the legions in a very conveniently oppositional relation to the human high seats, because so long as the legions do not, in the rank and file, chafe under the greenskin leadership, which they do not seem to it. The legions are well-adjusted at this point, more or less. Now the high seats can't position their cannon wholly against the greenskins publicly because military and government go very well hand-in-hand. Especially, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in the post-Meetson-Roman-style military setup, no? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's, uh, yeah, it's a... What a wonderful coincidence that it worked out that way and for the for Black and the military. The humor there is plain and yes, haha, very good. But in fact, though, actually, how great that it worked out that way for him that someone like Grimm was born among the Greenskins rather than, you know, who the heir of the day was going to become or heiress or... True, yeah. I've run I'm, out of names. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking through it and... Of the generals, like obviously the three marshals, and then of the legion generals, there aren't that many. As pretty soon there will be fifteen, so right now there are thirteen. There's a significant number that are non-human led. You've got the three marshals. There's Istrid here. You've got a dragon for one of the like. <laughs> they're uh, uh, which is an even more wonderfully unexplored corner of anything <laughs> than the ogres. <laughs> yeah. We don't see a lot of dragons, and one of them is just, you know, the general of one of the legions of terror. It's fantastic. He is sleeping right now? They? Uh, he sounds right. So I'm looking through the legions right now, and of the 15, of the 15, you know, prior to, uh, of the 15, so once once Kat gets hers, we don't know the who's in charge of 14, but 15 is Juniper, Uh. 13 is uh, obviously Holt, so that's human. But then going, going down the line, we've got an orc, a vampire, a dragon, a goblin, a goblin, an ogre, an orc, an orc, a goblin, an ogre, a human, an orc. I think there are only two humans. Of the, of the, fifth, of the 14 that we know, there are two humans in charge, of the, in charge of the legions. And the rest are orcs, goblins, ogres, a dragon, and a vampire. <laughs> Speaking of unexplored corners of the guide. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it does say here, I have pulled up what I assume is the same page, uh, General Necheb, General Catastrophe, is listed as Dragon, comma, and then under the place where gender goes, Other. So fantastic. Well, there you go. And I just, 
we've talked about before, it's not remarkable in the world of the guide as we know it. But knowing that the college, the war college, had gendered admission at a recent mm-hmm. point for the 14 we know about, which are all but 14, we have six males, seven females, and an other. And I just, male and female are the words used on the list. I, mm. When I say females, I feel immediately bad. And now I am not a good feminist, and I apologize to our listenership. <laughs> how cool. I, I do appreciate how progressive the Legions of Terror are. Good for them. 